All right, good. Well, I'm glad uh, everybody uh, everybody's back uh, uh, from their break. Uh, so the last talk of this uh, is on uh, the COVID vaccine. And I think ISUSA has always been very uh, prescient in terms of a storm of HIV moving quickly to HCV and now uh, COVID, among uh, other viral diseases. Uh, and we're pleased to have Ann Falsey uh, with us. Ann really comes from a dynasty in Rochester, uh, which is focused on uh, viral diseases for, I don't know, Ann, probably about 50 years or maybe longer, uh, starting with RSV and influenza and now expanding uh, outwards. And Ann has done a lot of work on RSV and metanumavirus uh, and uh, now COVID. And I think that uh, if there's one topic in virology everybody wants to hear today, uh, it would be uh, what's going on with the vaccine. So, uh, Ann, you have to tell us everything in your allotted time. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to uh, this this meeting. Uh, you know, I like to tell people it's either a really good time to be a respiratory virologist or, or a really bad time. <laughs> so um, I'm going to give you a, a whirlwind tour of what's going on with the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, these are my disclosures. And, you know, I... I Pretty sure everybody listening to this talk is aware about how bad this epidemic is. But I, I like to show this slide in that we who are in respiratory viral infections look at these sine waves, as you can see. Um, it's the it's called the PNI uh, uh, graph. And so every winter season, there is seasonal uh, variation with an increase in respiratory and uh, infections and pneumonia, and that when the excess um, mortality exceeds that expected baseline, uh, we call it an influenza epidemic. And you can see in 2018 here, uh, we did have a pretty bad flu year, but if you look over to 2020, it's absolutely dwarfed by COVID. So they've now included COVID uh, and the deaths due to COVID. It's just monstrous compared to flu. So we all know it's a huge problem. So before talking about a vaccine, we really need to just review a little bit about the virus. And so many people know that it is a coronavirus. It's an RNA virus. There's a lot of different animal species um, throughout the animal kingdom, and particularly bats. Bats carry everything that's bad. Um, and other animals are then in intermediaries. It got its name uh, from this, uh, the surface, which reminded somebody of the spokes on a king's crown. Uh, these are the surface proteins, the spike protein, and they thought it looked like a corona, a crown. Um, there are seven known human strains, and listed here are the four ones that uh, really cause seasonal disease. So bronchitis, pneumonia, colds, and things like that. And then at the bottom are the three that have emerged more recently, causing severe respiratory distress. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, you know, all bad things come from bats. And the current coronavirus has 89% um, uh, gene um, uh, identity with a bat-like virus. And this is the phylogenetic tree. There are alpha coronaviruses and beta coronaviruses. And over here are the, the, the bad ones, the bad actors, and this is uh, SARS-CoV-2, which actually is uh, phylogenetically uh, fairly close to SARS-CoV-1. This is a bit of a cartoon which allows us to review the structure. Um, it is an enveloped virus, and here is this all-important spike protein. 
And this seems to be the major target of the immune system and neutralizing antibody. And so um, all of the major vaccines that are moving forward are directed against making antibody against the spike protein. So a little more detail about this spike protein. It's a class one fusion protein, uh, just like RSV. And on the top here that's shown in green is the uh, part of the spike protein that actually binds with the receptor binding domain. That it, It's referred to as the receptor binding domain because it binds to the ACE receptor, which is on the respiratory epithelial cells. And this little green part of the protein can extend uh, and sort of stick out its thumb when it's going to uh, um, bind. And so this, again, is just a cartoon. This is the pre-fusion spike. And one thing to say about fusion proteins, they do exist in a metastable state uh, when they're pre-fusion before they have um, fused with the cell. It, it sticks up its thumb, it binds to the ACE receptor, and that's when fusion is initiated. And there is some fairly significant change, structural change, in the protein after it fuses. And uh, with other viruses such as RSV, the pre-fusion state seems to induce uh, more robust neutralizing antibodies. Um, it doesn't seem quite as important with the coronavirus spike protein. But you could see if you had an antibody that bound to this portion of the spike protein, it would really interrupt uh, binding and uh, biological activity. So, you know, how do we get out of this mess? Um, you know, herd immunity and vaccination are really the only two, two strategies. And obviously, herd, herd immunity is not acceptable. It just accepts that you know, millions of people are going to die. So that's why we're talking about vaccination. <clears throat> but be, again, before you get to vaccination, a lot of uh, uh, coverage in the news particularly is, well, do we really have immunity to SARS-CoV-2? Is it possible? And you will hear things about people being reinfected after actually having coronavirus. Um, a lot of that is simply... Uh, the tail end of a prolonged low-level excretion, and it's not really reinfection. But there have been some documented reinfections when they've done uh, sequencing of the virus. Interestingly, these are people that are basically asymptomatic and were picked up on screening. Um, so I actually have no reason to think that this coronavirus would act markedly different than the other seasonal coronaviruses, where a partial protection is, is a good thing. Um, all of the respiratory viruses um, don't induce lifelong sterilizing immunity. If you think about flu and rhinovirus and RSV, um, we get them when we're little and we get an infection and then we have a period of partial Im or immunity. And then as the antibody wanes and immunity wanes, uh, we can get sick again, you know, with a cough or a cold or bronchitis. And generally, you don't end up with a severe pneumonia and on a ventilator. So I, I think that that would, would be the most likely scenario. But since we don't know, uh, we don't have experience. There's amazingly little that is written on the immunity to coronaviruses. And I think it's because nobody cared when they just caused colds. And this is one study where they looked at a challenge model with one coronavirus 229E. And they took 33 people. And they uh, drew blood at baseline, and then they actually challenged them with the coronavirus. 
and they looked at neutralizing antibody, serum binding antibody, and the nasal antibody, and they compared their volunteers that had mild illness to those who had moderate illness. And notably, those who had moderate illness, more severely ill, had significantly lower pre-infection antibodies than did the people with mild illness, suggesting that high antibody levels are beneficial and can ameliorate the severity of disease. So another concern when talking about vaccine development is mutation of the virus. And this is a graph where the pictorial look at that with each change in color, it represents a mutation. And RNA viruses are notoriously mutatable. And so this is back in December. And you can see that as it changed color over the ensuing months, that there are a fair amount of mutations. Most of these are silent mutations. But one thing that's interesting is the aspartate to glycine mutation at site 614. So the original virus in Wuhan, China is shown here in green. And then as it moved over to Europe, there was a mutation at this site. And then this has actually become the dominant virus throughout the world. And there has just been very recent data in animal models that show that this mutated virus actually replicates better in the upper airways. So no surprise that it would become the more dominant strain because it transmits better. But interestingly, the antibody that is generated from many of the vaccine candidates, it neutralizes both strains equally well. Lastly, the thing we worry about is antibody enhanced disease. And this really came to light with the RSV vaccine in the 1960s, in which they use sort of a brute force, they just formalin and activated the virus. And unfortunately, what this did was produce a fair amount of non-neutralizing antibody. And there was also a shift from a nice balanced immune response, humoral and cellular immune response, to a dysregulated inflammatory response. So if you look at the cartoon, neutralizing antibody actually prevents the virus from binding to the ACE receptor. Whereas non-neutralizing antibody does not neutralize the virus and the FC portion can then bind to FC receptors on monocytes and macrophages and actually facilitate virus entry into the cell. And so for the coronaviruses, this is a theoretical concern. There doesn't seem to be any evidence. Most of the, well, all of the vaccine candidates moving forward have had scrutiny for that they're inducing a good ratio of neutralizing to non-neutralizing antibody, that they have a Th1 biased immune profile. And there is a requirement for animal models to show that with challenges, there's no immunopathology that's observed. So I think we all know that in normal times, vaccine development takes a long time, 10 years to go through the preclinical stages and through phase one, two, and three. This has been like nothing I have ever experienced, but it's important to note that the stages are not actually being skipped. Each stage is being done. It's just being done very rapidly with everybody working 24 hours, seven. There's no such things as weekends anymore. And the regulatory bodies are turning things around very quickly. 
So, you know, in steps Operation Warp Speed, which has the uh, the dumbest name ever, but it's actually a good thing in that not only is it funding some of these very big phase three trials, it's allowing the vaccine manufacturers to produce at risk. So they are gearing up and producing large amounts of vaccine without actually knowing that it's going to be effective because the last thing you want to do is reach a point where you show the vaccine is great, it works, and then you have to wait six months for um, them to gear up manufacturing. The three main types of vaccines that are currently in phase one, two, and three trials are listed here. Uh, And they're all different ways of skinning a cat. You know, they're all aimed at making antibody to the spike protein. So there are the messenger RNA vaccines, and this is where uh, basically the MRA, the naked gene for uh, the spike protein, is encapsulated in in lipid, and uh, it provides the instructions uh, once it enters the cell for the body's cells to make the spike protein itself. And this um, approach allows the body to make the protein, so we don't worry quite as much that we may be uh, disrupting important epitopes and making non-neutralizing antibody. It also is uh, apparently uh, easier to scale up large volumes of vaccine. The second approach uh, delivers the spike gene protein uh, using another uh, organism, typically an avirulent non-replicating virus. It's sort of like the Trojan horse approach. And very frequently, adenoviruses have been used for uh, this um, uh, type of vaccine. And then lastly is the spike protein is just made in the lab. Um, and that's kind of the traditional approach. That's how flu vaccines are made. Um, and I'll just briefly go through some of these different vaccines. Um, these are the, the vaccines that are in development listed here. Moderna and Pfizer are RNA. AstraZeneca and Janssen are ad, uh, vector vaccines. And Novavax and Sanofi are purified proteins. Uh, interestingly, Pfizer got impatient and just opted out of Operation Warp Speed, uh, I think basically because they, they didn't want the government telling them what to do, and they wanted to just get going and not wait in line. So all of the studies going forward through Operation Warp Speed have been relatively harmonized. They are large sample sizes, 30 to, six, uh, 30 to 60,000, to allow a fairly quick uh, result. They are event-driven, so that means that you need to achieve a certain number of cases uh, to, to look at how many cases occur in the vaccine recipients versus the placebos. And uh, very typically, there is an interim analysis built in at the halfway point. Um, the primary endpoint, they, they differ a little bit by trial by trial, but it's really symptomatic PCR-proven COVID disease. And, you know, the estimates uh, are a little different with each study, but they assume at least a 70% efficacy and generally assume somewhere between a 0.6 to 1% attack rate in the population. Um, And estimate, given that, you would need about six months to accrue cases for your final analysis. And obviously that could change depending on, you know, uh, the way things are going, at least in the U.S., uh, we may actually get to our answer sooner because the attack rates are starting to be very high. Uh, and notably, there is a single data safety monitoring board that is monitoring all of these studies, uh, again, to look for any trends, particularly uh, events that may be low um, numbers in each study, such as enhanced disease. They can look across the studies to look for any safety signals. 
So the first one out of the gate was Moderna with a messenger RNA vaccine, and they published this in July. Um, and this is just an example, and I won't show uh, every single study, but this is their phase one reactogenicity study. And you can see here that um, severe is shown in yellow, uh, blue is moderate, and gray is mild. And these are the systemic symptoms, and down here are the local symptoms. This is vaccination one, vaccination two. And, you know, just the eyeball test shows you that, you, you know, they're, they're getting more reactogenicity uh, with the second vaccination. But if we also look at the different doses they were using, 25, 100, and 250, that most of the reactogenicity, the severe, is in that 250 uh, microgram dose. So when they looked at their immunogenicity, these are the 2,500 and 250 microgram doses. And this is after the first vaccination, and this is after the second vaccination. And you can see there is an immune response with um, one dose, but you really boost nicely with a second dose. And you can look over here, and this is 100 micrograms, and this is 250 micrograms. And most of the studies uh, provide um, convalescent sera as sort of a yardstick to measure these, that there really is no difference between the 100 and the 250. And so because the 250 was really unacceptable in uh, reactogenicity, they moved forward with the phase three with the 100 microgram dose. Uh, the Pfizer constructs, uh, they looked at the just a gene uh, segment with the receptor binding uh, uh, protein, and then they looked at the whole spike protein. This does contain mutations to hold it in the prefusion state, and then they are coated in lipid, and that helps to get it into the cell better. And uh, in Rochester, we were, were fortunate to participate in the phase one study, there were uh, four U.S. sites, uh, NYU, Maryland, Rochester, and Cincinnati, and there were 150 people uh, enrolled, and we evaluated two different constructs that I just showed you and three different doses. And this uh, data was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, the reactogenicity, interestingly, was uh, less with the whole gene compared to just the receptor binding domain. And then this shows you the neutralizing antibody responses. These, shown in yellow is the B1 construct, that's just the receptor binding, versus purple shows you the whole gene. These are the young folks, these are the older people. And again, the neutralizing responses um, with the 30 microgram dose uh, were you know, essentially just as good as the, the other construct. And because it was less reactogenic, that was the dose and uh, construct that was chose for the phase three trials. So both the Moderna and Pfizer trials began on um, July 28th. Uh, Moderna had 99 sites, Pfizer 149 sites with some international sites. These are both 30,000 per, well, Pfizer actually increased its enrollment to 45,000. But they are one-to-one -one vaccine to placebo, and the endpoints, again, are symptomatic uh, COVID-positive illnesses, and they uh, estimate a six-month time to final analysis. So moving on to the vectored vaccines, um, these four uh, shown on top are those that are moving uh, into phase three trials. 
the Chadox, uh, AstraZeneca, the Johnson. And then there is a Chinese uh, vaccine made by CanSino, which is adenovirus 5. And then there's a heterologous prime boost with an adeno 26 and uh, ad5 uh, made by the Gamela Institute in Russia. Um, these are just a list of some of the preclinical um, the pre-clinicals, uh, vaccines that are being moved forward that are vectored. And uh, there's a number of organisms that they're using. And I just call your attention to deactivated rabies. And I don't know whether that's a good idea or not, but I think it would be a nightmare for the marketing people. So moving on to AstraZeneca, this is the Oxford, otherwise known as the Oxford vaccine. Uh, their phase one data was uh, presented in, in Lancet. This is a replication deficient chimpanzee adenovirus, which expresses the uh, spike protein. Uh, it is not stabilized in the prefusion uh, form. Um, and a chimpanzee adenovirus is not pathogenic to people. Uh, and hence they are not immune. Uh, there's a fair amount of experience with this vector. Uh, it's been used with flu, TB, malaria, Zika, uh, and most recently MERS. And so the phase one uh, data was in uh, roughly a thousand people. Uh, they had a control vaccine of Minactra. It wasn't a saline placebo. And originally they intended it to be a one dose vaccine. So they only did 10 people with a prime boost. And this is the dose five times 10 to the 10th particles. And this is just the reactogenicity data on top is first dose, second dose. And this is local first dose, second dose. This is systemic with yellow being mild and this pink color being uh, moderate. And with the vector vaccines, the reactogenicity tends to be more intense with the first vaccination than the second, unlike the RNA vaccines. And um, it was basically felt to be uh, quite acceptable uh, in terms of a, a reactogenicity profile. Um, again, this is just a, a, an example of their um, immunogenicity data. Um, this is at day 28 after one dose. And they did find, and these, this is only 10 people, uh, that they did get a significant boost uh, if they gave another dose. And this here is con convalescent plasma. So in the end, they, they you know, stopped hurrying and they went and did um, prime boost in all the different age groups. And it looked um, significantly better. So they went with that for the phase three trial. So the phase three trial of AstraZeneca is two doses, 28 days apart. Uh, in this study, two thirds of the participants get the vaccine versus the placebo. Uh, and again, the primary endpoint is symptomatic PCR positive disease. Uh, the US study opened on August 31st, 829 people were enrolled. It was paused for uh, seven weeks because of a neurological event that occurred in the UK. It was thoroughly investigated by the British authorities and the FDA and was reopened to enrollment um, on October 28th. And so far, uh, probably today, there's about 6,000 people enrolled. Moving on to Janssen, this is an adenovirus 26 vector vaccine. Uh, it includes the spike gene uh, to, um, to code for the prefusion spike. Um, because adenovirus 26, which is a human pathogen, it's an uncommon pathogen though, and so there's not a lot of pre-existing immunity in the human population. Indeed, there is also experience with this vaccine for other pathogens, Ebola, Zika, <clears throat> HIV, and RSV. 
Um, so this is their uh, um, phase one data. It's just in preprint form, um, as far as I know. They did two cohorts. They did young and older, and then they did two doses, um, a low dose and a higher dose. And they also are doing uh, one dose and two doses, but it's 56 days apart. And so uh, their data that they present is really just one dose. And because I think that they, you know, it's a balance between getting going and getting people protected versus optimal immunogenicity, they decided to go with a one-dose uh, vaccine. And this is just the data from that study. Cohort 1A is young. Cohort 3 is the older people. Here are the two different doses, uh, 5 times 10 to the 10th, 1 times 10 to the 11th. And it shows um, their uh, antibody responses to a single vaccination. Again, convalescent plasma is your yardstick. And, you know, they get a pretty good um, immune response. But if you look over at convalescent plasma, with the one dose, it does tend to be on the lower side of what you can achieve uh, with natural infection. So they've begun their phase one, uh, phase three trial. It opened September 23rd. Uh, it's a very large global study, 60,000 people. They ended up going with the lower dose because it didn't seem to have a, a significant effect on immunogenicity. And this is placebo vaccine one to one. Um, the, the Chinese vaccine, the AD5, um, is going forward. And this is just an example of their phase two data. Um, they did um, look at pre-existing uh, antibody in the population to add five because it's a fairly common uh, serotype and people have immunity. And they did notice a significant negative impact um, with increasing age and antibody greater than 200 to add five in the population. Um, there's also been concerns because of the uh, experience in the, with the HIV vaccines where there seemed to be an increased HIV um, infection rate in those people with pre-existing immunity with an ad 5 vectored vaccine. Um, so, you know, in many groups, there's a concern using uh, adenovirus 5. And then lastly, I just mentioned the Gamella Institute vaccine. This is the Russian vaccine. Oh, and I should say the Chinese vaccine um, is in phase 3 in, in Pakistan. So, you know, you may have heard on the news that, you know, Vladimir Putin... Uh, approved for use uh, under emergency use, their their vaccine. Um, it's interesting. I'm not going to bother to present the data, but their phase one uh, data was was um, published in Lancet. It's only 76 individuals. And they, they use a priming with uh, the spike protein with an ad 26, and then they boost with ad 5. Um, you know, the, the immunogenicity looks, looks fine, but it, you know, they basically approved it for use before they've done their, uh, phase, phase three study. Uh, and that is, um, reportedly, uh, ongoing. Um, so lastly, the protein based vaccines. This is, you know, the real traditional approach. Um, you need to be very careful, uh, to preserve the natural shape of the protein so that you don't in, in, um, somehow interrupt or um, inactivate the important epitopes. Uh, frequently, adjuvants are needed to just provide that extra boost to the immune system. And this is the technology used by Sanofi Pasteur. It's called the BEST uh, platform. And what they do is they engineer in uh, the spike protein to a baculovirus, 
the baculovirus then infects insect cells, um, and they can uh, do this in bioreactors, and then they purify the actual protein, um, and that is for the vaccine. The two approaches, um, two companies using this approach are Sanofi Pasteur. Uh, interestingly, they've partnered with uh, GlaxoSmithKline and um, to make the adjuvant ASO3, which is used in flu block. Uh, it's anticipated the trial might start in January 2021. Depending on what is approved at that point, it, you know, it may be, have to be an equivalency uh, trial. And then Novavax um, is uh, also using a spike protein in a nanoparticle with an adjuvant called Matrix M, which is a, a saponin-based adjuvant. Uh, they have uh, had some success with their Ebola vaccine, and this trial is scheduled to begin sometime in December. So it's a real horse race. And, you know, initially Moderna got out of the gate maybe a little faster. Pfizer has been working hard to catch up. So I'm sure that you all heard the news about the Pfizer interim analysis uh, that was just a few days ago. Um, so they've had 43,000 people, a little over 43,000 people enrolled. And so at their interim analysis of 94 cases of COVID, uh, that occurred at least one week post the second vaccination, it was found to be 90% effective to prevent symptomatic infection, which is really quite extraordinary. Um, interestingly, the Data Safety Monitoring Board uh, recommended that they continue the study to the final analysis um, of 164 cases. And you might ask why. Um, and, you know, we... There are so few cases in the group that received uh, the vaccine, so sort of vaccine failures. Um, I think that it's important to make sure uh, that there's no hint of uh, enhanced disease if you're not completely protected. Um, and we have to remember we're going to be putting this into millions of people. And so it's important to do all the proper uh, safety testing. Uh, but we do know that they plan to uh, file eventually for an emergency use uh, authorization. So, you know, when we got this news, we all did the happy dance. Um, you know, I think this is really good news for all of the vaccines moving forward. This is proof of concept. It looks highly effective. And so if you have a vaccine that produces good neutralizing antibody, there are reasons to be optimistic that it will actually prevent infection. So now that, you know, we're well on the way, it, it also raises a tremendous number of questions. And so what happens to participants in other trials? We, you know, I'm currently enrolling for AstraZeneca and everybody wants to know, well, you know, if Pfizer is licensed. Can I go get it? Uh, as it's a good question. Um, who gets the vaccine first when it gets to be licensed? Um, you know, you're not going to have enough for everybody all at once. Uh, we also wonder about whether antibody will be durable and will we need uh, revaccinations at some point and at what interval? And would you use the same vaccine or is it okay to use different kinds of vaccines? So there are a tremendous number of questions uh, that will need to be worked out. It is an active uh, topic with the uh, NIH to try to figure out how to um, get more information uh, because we clearly need more than one vaccine. Uh, if you think about the Pfizer vaccine, it is um, uh, needs to be stored at minus 80. So maybe that's not the best vaccine for the developing world where that could be a real issue. 
So um, I've raised some questions. I don't have the answers to all of them, and I'll just stop there and um, see if anyone else has any questions. That's great. Thanks, uh, th- thanks Anne, for that. Let me just start out with a couple of questions there. In your experience with vaccines, uh, you know, there have been other vaccines like the Averon vaccine, which uh, be- presumably because they had a cold chain uh, issue, it was harder to roll out. Between the problems of having two vaccines, some of the reactogenicity, and the difficulty of distributing the Pfizer vaccine with the cold chain problem, do you think this is realistic that this is going to have an impact in the next 12 months? Um, I do. I, you know, I think that there, there are a lot of smart people that can help to solve the cold chain issue. Um, and, and again, it just may not be the best vaccine for every segment of the world, because I do think that the developing world has uh, some challenges. But in many developed countries, having a minus 80 freezer is, um, is, is solvable. And, you know, how to then uh, make it so that it could be at health clinics and at your local pharmacy. I, I feel like that problem should be solvable. The science of making the vaccine, you know, is one hurdle. And this was tremendously good news uh, that it is solvable. It, it's also possible it may not actually need to be stored at minus 80. This is where they start. I don't know if they've done all the studies to really uh, see if, you know, it can tolerate some lower doses, uh, yeah. lower, lower temperatures. Maybe the pharmacies can get those smaller if they make them minus, uh, minus 70 vax, uh refrigerators, much like kids had in their dorm rooms to keep beer cold or something yeah, like that. Mr. Frosty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had a question about, I had a question about the Pfizer study real quick. So you, you covered the data nicely, but what's, what I can't get my head around is that the data safety monitoring board met. They determined that there was a 90% efficacy. They announced it, but they didn't stop the trial. I assume that's because of they need two months of safety, but why announce it now when you when you can't take the placebo group and put them on treatment? That doesn't seem standard for what we normally do. Yeah, you know, I, I can't speak to Pfizer's decision to announce it. Um, you know, I don't, that wasn't the data safety monitoring board's decision. Um, you know, what the company does to announce it. I, you know, I see there's there's a good aspects and bad aspects to that. And, you know, I think that it's kind of the shot in the arm, ha-ha, that sometimes we need to keep us going. I mean, these are dark times. And, you know, many people have been working, you know, every second of every day, not knowing that we'll be successful. And, you know, we we needed this good news. Um, I also hope that it might be used to take those people that are having pandemic fatigue and kind of like, well, why even bother wear my mask or socially distance? It's hopeless. They're never going to have a vaccine. Well, we will have a vaccine. And so they should be motivated to continue to be safe until we get to that point we can distribute it. But the reason that they announced it, you know, maybe they needed a boost in their stock prices. I, I don't know. I actually like Pfizer. I've, I've worked with Pfizer for, for oh, I, I didn't. Yeah, I just, 
I, I, I've just never seen that. I don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> and, and can I just ask you one question about ending this? Do, do you know whether the protocol is written so that the placebo recipients uh, immediately get uh, the vaccine if, in fact, they show efficacy? Because if that's the case, you would think this is the time to give it to them. It, it is It is written in a um, somewhat... Uh, and not ambiguous, but it, it says that it will be offered to the placebos at the point with discussions with the FDA and the regulatory bodies. So um, they, they wrote it in a way where they, you know, they needed to say that they're going to discuss it with the FDA. That they, you know, the Data Safety Monitoring Board recommended they keep going with the study. So really, per protocol, they need to keep going with the, the study. Um, and again, I, I think you can make a good argument about safety that, you know, yes, it looks incredibly good that, you know, 90% of the cases occurred in the placebos versus the vaccinees. And, and I think everyone is aware of the pressing need for an effective vaccine and don't dilly-dally. But, you know, before you go from 45,000 to millions of people, uh, I think they just want to be a little bit more measured and get that extra safety data. All right. So let me, um, let's talk about that. So my, my, by my back of the envelope, I'm guessing around nine of the 94 folks in the vaccine group, uh, sorry, nine of the 94 failures or infections occurred in the vaccine group. So the, the key question is going to be, what are the correlates of immunity that maybe weren't present in them? Because as I understand it, all of them, the, the clock didn't start ticking for the actual outcome until after the second dose was given and the seven-day period after. So there were 94 cases, right? So assuming that those correlates we can figure out later, to me it seems like there's better news here than might meet the eye in the sense that you showed nicely how almost all these vaccines have similar antibody production against spike protein, et cetera. So it tells me that it's very possible that to varying degrees, many of these vaccines will be efficacious, which means that we might be able to use something where cold chain is impossible, uh, and we might have opportunities to really, if not, for lack of a better word, flood the market with more vaccines, assuming safety is relatively equal. Do you share my optimism or are I just uh, uh, COVID blind right now? You've been drinking the Kool-Aid. No, I share your optimism. Uh, you know, I think this was uh, very good news that um, antibody is something we can generally measure. We can look for um, protective levels. We can also look that, you know, maybe those nine failures were very soon after the second vaccination. You know? Yeah, we I was wondering that. Um, so that, you know, they, they didn't present a lot of the granular data that I think we'd all like to know. Um, but hopefully that's coming and that, you know, I think they're going to get to 164 cases pretty quickly. Um, Should be this week. Well, yeah. So, I mean, they're thinking, you know, it's, it's sort of like December is going to be where they really analyze the data. And so it's it's not that much time we, we need to wait and look at the – but, yes, I think that, you, you know, sometimes uh, – not everybody hopefully going forward is going to have to do a huge efficacy trial. Maybe they can show safety data and they can uh, show that it meets a correlative protection. I think Swindoll had a question. Yes, thank you. That was a terrific talk. I just 
had a question maybe um, rele relevant for this audience about inclusion of people with HIV in these vaccine studies. So on clinicaltrials.gov, it says in the Pfizer study, they were excluded from phases one and two, which suggests maybe in phase three they were in there. Maybe ultimately we'll learn something about how the vaccine performs in people with HIV. Yes, and um, this again is, is a, a topic that's been uh, tried to be harmonized throughout the big phase three studies, although Pfizer didn't participate, that people with stable HIV disease and controlled uh, viral suppression are included. So in the AstraZeneca study, um, if you have uh, adequate viral suppression and you're stable with a CD4 count over 200, you can be in the trial. It is my recollection that that was true for the phase three Pfizer trial as well. So, so there are two other questions uh, that are similar in the coming in from the audience, and uh, they're kind of related, and I think we can quickly go through that. But an issue about what does a 90% mean and when when you don't know uh, about the exposure, but what this really is is just a proportion of those who got vaccine getting infected versus those who got placebo, and that's the 90%, right? Right. Different. You don't really need to know exposure. It's event, right. you know, placebo versus vaccinees, uh, and you just count up the number of infections. Yeah, so what about young people? And well, let's say these come out, and you mentioned in your last list of questions, who first and all that, and I've seen arguments of saying, well, treat the very young because they're the ones who are going to be spreading it more uh, versus the most vulnerable. So do you have a position on that? Well, you know, I think that they're developing plans that sound sensible to me to start, that healthcare workers are going to be first in line for rollout of a vaccine. And then following that would be uh, frail older people, uh, people with underlying conditions, because we know that they get they get sick um, and are the most likely to be hospitalized and die. Uh, but the point you bring up is an interesting one, and you know that's the other thing we don't know about these uh, vaccines of whether if they produce sterilizing immunity. So I told you that it's ninety percent effective to prevent um, symptomatic PCR positive disease, but we don't actually know if it's going to decrease um, shedding, I mean, I think we think it will, uh, but whether or not there will be, um, it doesn't prevent asymptomatic individuals. And so we do have a lot to learn. And I, I think that it only makes sense eventually if we, if it decreases shedding and um, illness that you would start to vaccinate young people. I know there's interest in the vaccine trials are moving down in age to teenagers and then to older children. Um, and, you know, I have to say, we, we've had a little outbreak in our own unit. And, um, you know, somebody who was tw is 24 and in good health is pretty darn symptomatic. So not everybody uh, just has a sniffle. So I, I think it's worth considering all the age groups, but you have to prioritize a certain people first. And you might also mention there are, as you apply, other effective vaccines that do, that do not pre uh, prevent uh, uh, asymptomatic carriage and transmission. Do you want to say just something more specific about which those are, like meningococcus, I presume? Well, and there was a concern with the uh, pertussis vaccine uh, that it was uh, preventing symptoms, but 
um, not giving sterilizing immunity, and therefore it was a perpetuating sort of a, a new blip in uh, the epidemic. So it really is a real concern, but this, this virus is so darn infectious, it's just spreading all the time everywhere. And so uh, if you only have a vaccine that prevents uh, symptomatic disease or severe disease in older people and groups at risk, then that, that's still a good thing. It's not ideal. You'd love to have sterilizing immunity to really decrease transmission because obviously that's important to keeping it away from uh, frail and vulnerable people. But, you know, what, one step at a time, I, I think. All right, well, I so guess, uh, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. I was just going to say, at this point, um, uh, I think we've sort of come to the hour. So if you have questions, you can put them in the Q and A, but, uh, Again, Anne, thanks very much for a great talk. And uh, Dr. Sag has said he's going to give us our concluding remarks.